Europeans understood ancient Egypt to have been a spooky, mysterious place long before Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon triggered the so-called Curse of Tutankhamun in 1922. There are decades of fiction, myth and legend predating the discovery of King Tut's tomb, stories of reincarnated mummies, curses and vengeance from beyond the grave. Here at Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things, we're exploring the history of this particular strain of weird thinking by examining Dublin man Bram Stoker's 1903 novel The Jewel of Seven Stars. It's a deeply strange iteration of late Victorian or early Edwardian Gothic, marked primarily by Stoker's legitimate interest in Egyptology and the amount of historical detail he packs into the novel. It's also a snapshot of another lost world, the world of the occult-obsessed British upper class of the early 20th century, a world of seances, spiritualism and elementals. Stoker's novel serves as an ideal entry into this world and a great place to start deconstructing the history of the mystic Egypt trope. This is part two of our Jewel of Seven Stars mini-series. We strongly recommend you start with part one if you haven't already. It's a great episode and we're very proud of it. Don't worry, we'll still be here waiting. I'm enjoying a crisp port lager beer from Metal Man Brewing based out of Waterford City. And I'm at the cabin in the woods surrounded by books of occult lore and history. So I've got plenty to keep me busy. Anyway, this is Jewel of Seven Stars, Bram Stoker's Spooky Egypt. Part two. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and this week you join us for more story time here at the Cabin in the Woods, for this is part two of our rereading and analysis of Bram Stoker's novel The Jewel of Seven Stars from 1903. Uh, I'm going to continue reading the story, uh, reading out some sections I have flagged as being particularly interesting, and adding some of my own thoughts and analysis as we go. If you'd prefer to have a kind of a preparation for this episode, please go back to part one if you've not listened to it. I'm not going to give too much intro about this. I'm pretty much going to just plunge into the book and pick up where we left off, which was the chapter called A Queen's Tomb. Uh, So far in the story, we are in London at the turn of the century. The novel appears to be set pretty close to the time in which it was written, 1903. We have a bunch of sort of upper middle class and upper class uh, in London British people um, who are interested in the history of ancient Egypt. They have uh, the archaeologist Abel Trelawney who is still in a coma. Something mysterious and spooky has happened to him. We've had a very slow burn, a very slow first half of the novel, kind of more in the tradition of the Victorian era mysteries than the the high gothic but things are about to pick up speed we're getting more and more hints that something mysterious from the ancient world is what is affecting Mr Trelawney and we're finally getting some information about a mysterious ancient Egyptian queen by the name of Queen Terra and we've been reading uh, along with the characters uh, a mysterious manuscript written by a Dutch traveler in the 1600s who traveled to the queen's tomb somewhere in Egypt. So as we pick up this chapter, A Queen's Tomb, 
we find ourselves now being narrated a story by um, the Egyptologist Corbeck, who is a colleague and friend of Mr. Abel Trelawney. So he is talking about how uh, they, some years previous to this, went looking for this tomb themselves, having read the, the tale of the Dutchman. So... At the start of A Queen's Tomb, Mr. Corbeck is narrating. So hopefully you are sitting comfortably, you have yourself um, maybe something nice to drink. I'm just drinking water myself as it is quite early in the day. But of course, in the spirit of turn of the century Gothic fiction, you might prefer to have perhaps a, a glass of fine uh, whiskey or sherry or something like that um, so that you are enjoying the tale in a suitably sort of a Victorian, Edwardian or Gothic manner. So here we go. Corbeck says uh, that when he travels to Egypt, he said this was soon after Arabi Pasha and Egypt was no safe place for travellers, especially if they were English. So what he's referring to here, of course, is the the uprising against the, the authorities that was happening in, in Egypt circa around 1882. And this being, of course, the point at which the British decided they needed to step in. Uh, before, prior to this, they had a lot of unofficial control in Egypt, perhaps alongside the French, but uh, their star, I think, was rising while the French star was, was going down. Um, prior to this, most of their control was more, uh, perhaps we should say, capitalistic. They had sunk a lot of money into certain projects um, that were building projects and development projects and that Khedive, who was the ruler of Egypt, was very much in the pocket of both Britain and France. But it was not really until this uprising in 1882 that the British feel the need to step in with military force. And from this point on, they have a sort of an unofficial uh, annexation of Egypt. So they're not technically running it, but they sort of have de facto control. So again, this all feeds into the British and their ambivalent attitude towards Egypt and the ancient world, which is perhaps why we see an explosion of Gothic literature focusing on ancient Egypt at this time. But if you'd like more information about that, do check out uh, episode one of our Jewel of Seven Stars miniseries. So Corbeck then says, <clears throat> We had secured the consent and passive cooperation of the officials still friendly to Britain. In the acquiring of which consent, I need hardly say that Mr. Trelawney's riches were of chief importance. We found our way in Dahaba Yehez to Aswan, whence, having got some Arabs from the Sheik and having given our usual bakshish, we, sent, we set out on our journey through the desert. Bakshish, of course, being a, is still a word used in Egypt and other places for, for bribery, essentially, when you need to make your way <laughs> through a, a less than entirely reputable system and uh, you kind of have to pawn off certain minor officials along the way to get what you want. Well, after much wandering and trying every winding in the interminable jumble of hills, we came at last at nightfall on just such a valley as Van Huyn had described. A valley with high, steep cliffs, narrowing in the centre and widening out to the eastern and western ends. At daylight, we were opposite the cliff and could easily note the opening high up in the rock and the hieroglyphic figures which were evidently intended originally to conceal it. But the signs which had baffled Van Huyn and those of his time and later were no secrets to us. The host of scholars who had given their brains and their lives to this work had wrested open the mysterious prison house of Egyptian language. On the hewn face of the rocky cliff, we, who had learned the secrets, could read what the Theban priesthood had, had 
there inscribed nearly 50 centuries before. So obviously contrasting here the the first traveller in the 1600s who was unable to read the hieroglyphics and the Edwardian or Victorian era traveller who is, but also note the sort of the, the sort of physical and violent language of acquisition they use here, that they had to wrest open the prison of Egyptian language, you know, a very colonialist language here. And and that feeds into the sort of attitude that even quote unquote scientists and archaeologists would have had at this time. For that the external inscription was the work of the priesthood, and a hostile priesthood at that, there could be no living doubt. The inscription on the rock, written in hieroglyphic, ran thus, Hither the gods come not at any summons. The nameless one has insulted them, and is forever alone. Go not nigh, lest their vin- vengeance wither you away. Again, 1903, so we have this very much the, the the high point of the concept of the ancient Egyptian curses. Uh, Roger Luckhurst, probably the primary scholar on this sort of thing, states that the, the most famous one, the curse of Tutankhamun, is in fact ought to be considered the tail end of the, the Victorian fascination with ancient Egypt and with curses in particular. Of course, the ancient Egyptians didn't place a lot of stock in curses. It wasn't really a going concern for them. It's much more of a Victorian invention, if you like. But this curse here that Stoker is inventing reminds me very much of the curse that you will often hear associated with the Tutankhamun story, which is, of course, the one which states that something to the effect of death shall come on swift wings to he who disturbs the rest of the pharaohs, which, uh, to anyone who's looked into this story, appears to have come from a fiction writer, I believe, a Victorian novelist who kind of wrote to the newspapers of the time and added a few little, uh, added a few elements to the uh, curse story, shall we say. Uh, Stoker continues, The warning must have been a terribly potent one at the time it was written, and for thousands of years afterwards, even when the language in which it was given had become a dead mystery to the people of the land. The tradition of such a terror lasts longer than its cause. Even in the symbols used, there was an added significance of alliteration. Forever is given in the hieroglyphics as, quote, millions of years. This symbol was repeated nine times in three groups of three, and after each group, a symbol of the upper world, the underworld, and the sky, so that for this lonely one there could be, through the vengeance of all the gods, resurrection in neither the world of sunlight, in the world of the dead, or for the soul in the region of the gods. Neither Mr. Trelawney nor I dared to tell any of our people what the writing meant, for though they did not believe in the religion whence the curse came, or in the gods whose vengeance was threatened, yet they were so superstitious that they would have probably, had they known of it, had thrown up their whole task and run away. Right, several things here, folks. Uh, Primarily, we have once again the, the ignorant, superstitious rabble of the natives, which is a constant trope in gothic fiction, in any kind of adventure story where Europeans go to an exotic place and come up against an ancient evil. Secondly, we have a really interesting mix here between genuine scholarship on Stoker's part. He is delving deep into into actual Egyptian lore here, and this is this is more than just a surface level um, bit of analysis. He's not just using ancient Egypt as a generic you know, spooky, mysterious place. He really knows quite a lot about it. He's gone into uh, a lot of reading and scholarship and he's fairly up on what was then known about Egypt at the time. And and yet, you know, inexplicably mixed up in all of this is this myth-making of 
the obsession with curses that still to this day we tend to associate in popular media with ancient Egypt. So they break into the tomb and uh, Corbeck says, The tomb was one of the most magnificent and beautiful which either of us had ever seen. From the elaborate nature of the sculpture and paintings and the perfection of the workmanship, it was evident that the tomb was prepared during the lifetime of her for whose resting place it was intended. The drawing of the hieroglyphic pictures was fine and the colouring superb, and in that high cavern, far away from even the damp of the Nile flood, all was as fresh as when the artists had laid down their palettes. Then he says, At the end of the antechamber, so that it would face the east, was a pillared portico hewn out of the solid rock. The pillars were massive and were seven-sided, a thing which we had not come across in any other tomb. So the number seven is going to become very important in this novel. Obviously it has, it has kind of properties in Western occultism and sort of British witchcraft. The number seven is often regarded as being important in a, a kind of a superstitious number. The, the seventh son of a seventh son, of course, popularly supposed in British folklore to be a, a seer or a, or a, wise, a wise person, as, the, as they would have called it. Now, a little bit more Egyptology from Stoker. He says, Sculptured on the architecture was the boat of the moon, containing Hathor, cow-headed and bearing the disc and plumes, and the dog-headed Hapai, the god of the north. It was steered by Harpocrates towards the north, represented by the pole star, surrounded by Draco and Ursa Major. In the latter, the stars that form what we call the plough were cut larger than any of the other stars and were filled with gold so that, in the light of torches, they seemed to flame with a special significance. Indeed, both the the constellation of the Great Bear um, and the Draco star will prove to be important in the the suppose the end end game for the mysterious Queen Terra. So, some of the text inside the tomb says: Terra, Queen of the Egypts, daughter of Antef, monarch of the north and the south, daughter of the sun queen of the diadems. It then set out, in full record, the history of her life and reign. The signs of sovereignty were given with a truly feminine profusion of adornment. So I like that. Stoker continually in this book ascribes certain characteristics to, to being quote-unquote feminine, but then, you know, as, as you will tend to find in novels of this era, but then goes a little strange with it towards the end and, and uh, sort of makes it difficult for me to decide where his uh, sympathies really lie, but we, we'll get to that when we get to it. The united crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt were, in especial, cut with exquisite precision. It was new to both of us to find the Hejat and the Desher, the white and the red crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt, on the steel of a queen. For it was a rule, without exception in the records, that in ancient Egypt either crown was worn only by a king, though they are to be found on goddesses. So if you're aware of anything about ancient Egypt, you had these two separate kingdoms, the upper and the lower, and each ruler had a slightly different uh, crown. And then later on in their history, they were united into one crown that had elements of both. Such an inscription was in itself a matter so startling as to arrest attention from anyone anywhere at any time. But you can have no conception of the effect which it had upon us. Though our eyes were not the first which had seen it, they were the first which could see it with understanding, 
since first the slab of rock was fixed in the cliff opening nearly 5,000 years before. To us was given to read this message from the dead, this message of one who had warred against the gods of old and claimed to have controlled them at a time when the hierarchy professed to be the only means of exciting their fears or gaining their goodwill. Again, Terra is, is placed here as somebody of great importance, somebody of tremendous independence, which as a female character is, is of note at this time when Stoker is writing. But also he's again harking back to perhaps the pharaoh Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh who the uh, Victorians in particular were rather obsessed with. But uh, more about him in, in episode one if you want to go back to that. Now we get into the, the good horror stuff, the good gothic stuff. So when they finally open the coffin, the sarcophagus, they write, The end of the wrist was covered with dried blood. It was as though the body had bled after death. The jagged ends of the broken wrist were rough with the clotted blood. Uh, through th this, the white bone sticking out looked like the matrix of opal. The blood had streamed down and stained the brown wrappings as with rust. Here, then, was full confirmation of the narrative. So, again, calling back to what they read in the Dutchman's folio, the the hand of the mummy, which was sticking out of the from the wrappings, had been cut off and apparently turned out to be a sort of an artifact of ill omen and a cursed, a cursed artifact, leading uh, several characters to their death. And now our more contemporary characters raiding the tomb, I, I suppose, in, in the 1880s, yeah, have found evidence that this was indeed what happened. So a nice kind of a spooky touch. Queen Terra was of the 11th or Theban dynasty of Egyptian kings, which held sway between the 29th and 25th centuries before Christ. She succeeded as the only child of her father, Antef. She must have been a girl of extraordinary character as well as ability, for she was but a young girl when her father died. Stoker goes into quite a bit of depth then about how she made her way um, in society in ancient Egypt, again, always uh, painting her as a independent and powerful figure. Her father, uh, of her father, he writes, he had also taught her statecraft and had even made her learned in the lore of the very priests themselves. He had used those of one cult against the other, each being hopeful of some present gain on its own part by the influence of the king, or of some ultimate gain from its own influence over his daughter. Thus, the princess had been brought up amongst scribes, and was herself no mean artist. Many of these things were told on the walls in pictures or in hieroglyphic writing of great beauty, and we came to the conclusion that not a few of them had been done by the princess herself. But the king had gone on to further lengths, and had had his daughter taught magic, by which she had power over sleep and will. This was real magic. Black magic, not the magic of the temples, which, I may explain, was of the harmless or white order, and was intended to impress rather than to affect. She had been an apt pupil, and had gone further than her teachers. Her power and her resources had given her great opportunities, of which she had availed herself to the full. She had won secrets from nature in strange ways, and had even gone to the length of going down into the tomb herself, having been swathed and coffined and left as dead for a whole month. So again, more information here about the power of Queen Terra. Also the very sort of Victorian differentiation of uh, magic powers into black and white, good and bad magic, which is an idea which I think is still with us, rightly or wrongly. And how Terra 
planted herself in the tomb and kind of allowed herself to die young, as we'll find out later, with the with the intent of resurrecting herself as a, a young, powerful woman still in her prime. Um, and when they're examining the sarcophagus, they mention that in every picture where hope or aim or resurrection was expressed, there was the added symbol of the North, and in many places, always in representations of important events, past, present or future, was a grouping of the stars of the plough. She evidently regarded this constellation as in some way peculiarly associated with herself. Perhaps you can guess here what Queen Terra has in mind. She had always intended her resurrection to be somewhere in the north. Now, this has implications for the Victorian mindset, of course, as we know, which Queen Terra doesn't in the novel, um, her, her corpse will eventually end up in London. So to a sort of a British identifying person writing or reading at this time, the obvious implication is that the British Empire, the most powerful on earth at the time the book is written, readily identifies with ancient empires from years gone by. Obviously the Greeks and the Romans, but going back as far as the Egyptians and this uh, sort of connection even suggests itself in certain elements of British uh, iconography and architecture. Uh, I guess the most obvious connection here to make would be buildings with the structure such as the that of the British Museum, with the pillars out on the front, uh, which I'm sure you can imagine and bring to mind, again with, with influences very clearly and deliberately from the old world and from the great ancient empires going back as far as Egypt. Therefore, she had intended her resurrection to be after a long time and in a more northern land, under the constellation whose seven stars had ruled her birth. To this end, her hand was to be in the air, unwrapped, and in it the jewel of seven stars, so that wherever it was air, she might move even as her ka could move. This, after thinking it over, Mr. Trelawney and I agreed, meant that her body could become astral at command, and so move, particle by particle, and become whole again when and where required. Great stuff here. We get the, the hint at astral travel, uh, which of course was to, much was made of this in paranormal circles uh, at the end of the century and into the 20th century. And thinking of sort of pulp novels of that era, this reminds me powerfully of the work of Dennis Wheatley, who uh, uses astral travel uh, as, as, he, as a plot device very frequently in his novels. Also, it reminds me of the sort of inevitability with which the British assumed that their rise was to happen and did happen. So to have ancient Egyptians who ruled their world in their day, to have them back then, you know, predicting that the, the power would one day shift to the north as if it was some sort of cosmic law, feeds into a lot of ideas, many of them rather uncomfortable, that uh, the British would have had at this time, in particular the notion that Northern European people were inherently superior because of the 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 landscape and the, the climate in which they grew up, which might sound a bit crazy out of context, but if you have any idea of the sort of racial ideas that were common at this time, the sort of bastardizations of Darwinism that were very common, this really was believed and justify you know, used to sort of justify and prop up colonialism, the idea that you know, Northern Europeans are just better because of the harsh conditions in which they grew up and that people from Southern warmer climates were inherently lazy or uncreative or, or such. So to have, you know, the, the, to have, for the British or British identifying as Stoker might have been, 
might be considered to have them posit ancient Egyptians way back then, you know, assuming a sort of an inevitability to the fact that the, the northern countries will one day rise and conquer the earth because of their nature is is not to be it's not a small thing and it's not an insignificant thing i think so then the narrative continues uh, we stayed around the valley of the sorcerer till we had copied roughly all the drawings and writings on the walls ceiling and floor we took with us the steel of lapis lazuli whose graven record was coloured with vermilion pigment. We took the sarcophagus and the mummy, the stone chest with the alabaster jars, the tables of bloodstone and alabaster, and onyx and carnelian, and the ivory pillow whose arch rested on buckles, round each of which was twisted an uraeus wrought in gold. So again, he continues here, pillaging, looting, really, taking all this stuff. Um, again, the language of acquisition is being used here. But on their way across the desert, on the second night, there came a violent storm. So I, I really like this. I like the idea that they're, they're messing with ancient powers they don't understand, uh, which is able to control perhaps even the elements. And the, these tropes go right all the way through the 20th century and up until the 1999 mummy, where, which, as silly as it is, and uh, as kind of Indiana Jones ripoff as it is, still taps back into some of this stuff where the mummy is able to control the elements and to create storms. But uh, they discover that after the storm, they discover that the mummy case has gone. So they have to go back to the Valley of the Sorcerer and back into the back into the tomb to get it. So there's a, a really great spooky moment where it's clear that the, the, the sarcophagus and the, the mummy is operating according to sort of perhaps supernatural rules. It's able to do its own thing. And then when they get back into the tomb, it says it was made more inf infinitely desolate still by the shrouded figure of the mummy of Queen Terra, which lay on the floor where the great sarcophagus had stood. Beside it lay, in the strange contorted attitudes of violent death, three of the Arabs who had deserted from our party. Their faces were black and their hands and necks were smeared with blood which had burst from mouth and nose and eyes. On the throat of each were the marks, now blackening, of a hand of seven fingers. A wonderful spooky moment there. And once again, the trope of the, the hapless Arab uh, servants who, when they're not being superstitious, are being killed off by the curse uh, in, in lieu of any Europeans. And then it says, For most wonderful of all, across the breast of the mum mummified queen lay a hand of seven fingers, ivory white, the wrist only showing a scar like a jagged red line from which seemed to depend drops of blood. Great stuff. So then he says, We had lost three whole days of our reckoning, out of our lives, while we had stood wondering in that chamber of the dead. Was it strange then that we had a superstitious feeling with regard to the dead Queen Terra and all that belonged in her? So when they come out of the tomb, they discover that three days have passed that they weren't able to count for. They're going through an episode of what later UFO proponents might call missing time. So they seem to have been put into some kind of a trance by the power of Queen Terra. Anyway, they split up at Alexandria. So our man Corbeck says that he had to bring the treasures alone back to the house um, in Kensington. And he says, I got to London all safe. There seemed to be some special good fortune to our journey. Kind of reminds me of Dracula, the way when Dracula travels, he's able to control the 
the the wind and the elements and uh, I believe the captain of the Demeter even or perhaps or maybe it's the maybe it was the Demeter maybe it's the ship on the way back but the, the the captains of the ship which carries Dracula mentions that they seem to have some special good fortune regarding the wind getting them there to their destination quickly so I think that's what's going on here oh and then he meets Trelawney back in London and mentions that he has sudden grey in his black hair uh, you know to show that he has been through some sort of terrible encounter which again reminds me of Dracula or at least the movie with uh, Keanu Reeves where he has got the terrible dye job uh, with the grey in his hair to show that he's been through some terrible thing oh and then we get something very important it says the strange tragedy of his loss and gain for the child was born after the mother's death took place during the time that we stood in that trance in the mummy pit of Queen Terra so at the very moment that they're in there in the tomb in Egypt Trelawney's wife back in England gives birth to Margaret so again the the connection between Margaret and the Queen is made very clear here there's some there's some direct spiritual perhaps supernatural connection between them <laughs> and uh, it becomes clear that this is not a mystery to Trelawney he knows it because he says she is unlike her mother but both in feature and colour, she is a marvellous resemblance to the pictures of Queen Terra. So yeah, he becomes more and more clear about this, that he, he's, not, he's not even that surprised when the connections between the Queen and his own daughter tend to mount up. So it implies that even back then when they first found the tomb, he was aware that there's something supernatural uh, going on. There's a strange bit then when Corbeck says, well, when the treasures which we had... Uh, taken from the tomb had been brought here and that little that little pause there as uh, written in the book almost hints at guilt you know he's like he for once and a british archaeologist is wondering you know from this era is stopping to say well yeah i guess we just kind of flat out stole this stuff huh and maybe it's because for once he's aware that some ancient power is might be watching him or at least he has a notion that might be the case so uh, we're talking about the, the artifacts that they found from the tomb and he says there were allusions in the writing on the walls of the tomb to the seven stars of the great bear that go to make up the plough and the north was again and again emphasised. And he mentions that the jewel came from the heart of an aerolite which is a, a, turn, a term for uh, an asteroid basically. So the, the jewel itself is made out of something from, from space which doesn't really go any further with that in the novel but just an extra little bit of strangeness associated to it i raised the blind and looked out the plough was high in the heavens and both its stars and the pole star were straight opposite the window so they get to they get to thinking about the importance of the plough and uh, it's eventually noticed that the descriptions of the plough that are on the jewel and in the tomb are the way the plough is now whereas um, it's supposed that it would have looked a little bit different um, back in the day when the queen was actually put in the tomb and that this might be some sort of prediction on her behalf as to when and where she would uh, be affecting her resurrection.
And so Corbeck becomes convinced that somewhere in the tomb there is hidden a number of special lamps that he will need uh, to be able to learn more about Queen Terra and her mummy and her tomb. So he heads back to Egypt and he states, The country was now in a condition very different to that in which it had been 16 years before. There was no need for troops or armed men. So I presume he's referring to the fact that this is at some point uh, after the year 1882. The British are now in charge firmly of Cairo and of Egypt. And therefore, I guess it's a safer place for uh, British adventurers, archaeologists and tomb (laughs) plunderers to travel around in. This time, when he heads back to the tomb, we get a fantastic Super Indiana Jones moment. Uh, As he's breaking into the tomb this time, he says, With a loud click, a metal figure seemed to dart from close to the opening of the Serdab. The stone slowly swung back to its place and shut with a click. The glimpse which I had of the descending figure appalled me for the moment. It was like that grim guardian which, according to the Arabian historian Ibu Abd al-Hogkin, the builder of the pyramids, King Saurid ibn Saluk placed in the western pyramid to defend its treasure. A marble figure, upright, with lance in hand, with on his head a serpent wreathed. When any approached, the serpent would bite him on one side, and twining about his throat and killing him, would return again to his place. So, as the archaeologist kind of comes into the tomb, a sort of a carved figure is sprung out of the wall, Uh, I guess some sort of clockwork type machinery has been activated. Again, the whole notion of like Victorian explorers going into tombs and there being these traps in place uh, is something which will continue through adventure fiction uh, throughout the 20th century, probably reaching its apex with the Indiana Jones movies of the 80s. Coming up next is a chapter called Awakening from the Trance. This is when finally um, Mr. Trelawney Sr., wakes up from the mysterious trance that he has been in, the trance which of course kicked off the entire narration way back at the beginning of the book, but I don't have too many notes to say here. He basically wakes up and confirms the story that they've been told by Corbeck already. And we've then come to a chapter called The Birthmark, which kind of makes much of the connections once again between Margaret and the Queen. At one point, the narrator sees her bare wrist You know, thrillingly exciting for uh, an early Edwardian gentleman, I'm sure. And he notes, On her wrist was a thin red jagged line from which seemed to hang red stains like drops of blood. Observant listeners will of course note that this matches indeed with the wound that the Queen herself has, being as her hand has been removed from her mummy. Now the plot really kind of gets going because basically Trelawney admits that this whole sh- this whole thing about getting the mummy and bringing it back to England was with a particular experiment in mind. So he's a man of science and he wants to test the reality of the Queen's sort of magic. He believes that perhaps she was somebody who had access to some very real kind of dark magic and he's going to try and see if he can affect this to go ahead with the resurrection that she was planning. He says... The experiment which is before us is to try whether or not there is any force, any reality, in the old magic. There could not possibly be more favourable conditions for the test, and it is my own desire to do all that is possible to make the original design effective. That there is some such existing power, I firmly believe. It might not be possible to create or arrange 
or organize such a power in our own time, but I take it that if in the old time such a power existed, it may have been some exceptional survival. After all, the Bible is not a myth, and we read there that the sun stood still at a man's command, and that an ass, not a human one, spoke. Nice little joke there by Bram Stoker, uh, kind of getting into the idea here that I guess I always have had about religion, which is that if one does indeed believe the the sort of literal happenings in the Bible, then you are admitting that you live in a universe of supernatural things, and uh, I would say then therefore the ability to dismiss the superstitions of other cultures or other religions becomes uh, less persuasive, to me at least. They then speak a little bit about the Queen herself. We get some more ideas about their interpretations of her. So the archaeologist Trelawney says, This woman seems to have had extraordinary foresight. Foresight far, far beyond her age and the philosophy of her time. She seems to have seen through the weakness of her own religion and even prepared for emergence into a different world. All her aspirations were for the north, the point of the compass whence blew the cool, invigorating breezes that make life a joy. From the first, her eyes seem to have been attracted to the seven stars of the plough, from the fact, as recorded in the hieroglyphics in her tomb, that at her birth a great aerolite fell, from whose heart was finally extracted that jewel of seven stars, which she regarded as the talisman of her life. So once again we have here this sort of turn-of-the-century assumption that the north of Europe and England in particular, precisely because of its nature, because of its location, perhaps because of its climate, w was indeed sort of destined to produce a sort of a master race. And if you have any knowledge of the sort of pseudoscience that was going on with regard to race at this time, at this height of the age of imperialism, that should come as no surprise. They then say, uh, oh, we then get into some classic like pseudo-ancient aliens territory, or at least uh, ancient knowledge and wisdom. So Trelawney says, Bear in mind that in old Egypt, the science of astronomy began and was developed to an extraordinary height, and that astrology followed astronomy in its progress. And it is possible that in the later developments of science with regard to light rays, we may yet find that astrology is on a scientific basis. Our next wave of scientific thought may deal with this, I shall have something special to call your minds to on this point presently. Bear in mind also that the Egyptians knew sciences, of which today, despite all our advantages, we are profoundly ignorant. Acoustics, for instance, an exact science with the builders of the temples of Karnak, of Luxor, of the pyramids, is today a mystery to Bell and Kelvin and Edison and Marconi. So, again, we have Stoker here being very up-to-date with the latest science of his day. He's name-dropping all of the scientific greats of his time. Something of note here is, at this time, there is a massive crossover between people who pursue serious science and people who pursue what we would now consider mysticism in particular. Not, I mean, there are people who are interested in these notions that the ancients had knowledge that we don't have now, but... Um, spiritualism, of course, would have been very big at around this time, and there was a huge crossover between certain scientific luminaries um, who were men of science, but who were also had a great interest and eventually a faith in, in spiritualism. So the whole, those things were very mixed up at this point, and, and some of the scientific revelations of this time kind of fed into that, because with the ideas of things like radio and acoustics, these were newly discovered invisible waves so it made a lot of sense to them that, well, hey, you know, we have these 
light rays and sound rays and uh, radio waves that seem to be able to make their way through the air and have effects on us, but we can't see them. So why not other kinds of mysterious invisible rays? You know, maybe spirits could be functioning functioning on a similar way, or perhaps other kinds of telepathy or various. This was taken in, in, in lots of different interesting directions by the sort of pseudo-scientific elite of this time. He then says, In another way too, there may be hidden in that box secrets which, for good or ill, may enlighten the world. We know from their records, and inferentially so, that the Egyptians studied the properties of herbs and minerals for magic purposes, white magic as well as black. We know that some of the wizards of old could induce from sleep dreams of any given kind. That this purpose was mainly affected by hypnotism, which was another art or science of Old Nile, I have little doubt. I just find this interesting because I trace a direct line between this period and earlier, these these ideas that the ancients had knowledge which was great and which has now been lost. Uh, I trace a line between that and sort of von Daniken in the 1960s, and I'm, I'm leaving out a few steps and a few important people in between, but then you, you fast forward to today and the popularity of people like Graham Hancock and a lot of American TV shows where people kind of aping Indiana Jones like to go out and go to archaeological sites and kind of make out as if uh, there is real evidence of these kind of ancient powers. I, I think it's Jason Colavito who says on his blog very often that uh, most people interpret the past as being, you know, there's historical past history with, with written records, and then there's a cutoff point at which there's no written records, and then anything earlier than that is just all mis mystical and mysterious and kind of flattened into one. So any any records or any monuments or um, remnants of those civilizations is instantly charged with mystery and we seem to have a very hard time treating them kind of sensibly and scientifically the way we do with more recent things because they can't always speak for themselves we invest them with mystery and we, we feel this need to sort of re-enchant if we can't enchant the present and believe in myth and mystery now well we'll we'll invest the past with that instead On the next chapter, The Purpose of Queen Terra, we have a fantastic image of the Jewel of Seven Stars itself, which we've just learned has come from an asteroid, which makes it extra spooky, of course. It looks like a carved image of an Egyptian scarab, with the seven stars of the plough carved into the top and the bottom of it. Now we get this bit of text. In the old Egyptian belief, it was held that there were words which, if used properly, for the method of speaking them was as important as the words themselves, could command the lords of the upper and the lower worlds. The hekau, or word of power, was all important in certain rituals. On the jewel of seven stars, which, as you know, is carved into the image of a scarab, are graven in hieroglyphic two such hekau, one above, the other underneath. Now this is not exactly in line with the sort of later concept of the Egyptian curse, which would sort of crystallize around 1920s with uh, Howard Carter and Tutankhamun, but it's certainly a step on the way towards it. We're definitely deep into that era where um, the England in particular is sort of reinventing Egypt in the popular imagination as a mysterious and spooky place. Curses, of course, any archaeologist will tell you, played no real role in Egyptian culture, at least ancient Egyptian culture, I mean, at least in terms of the way we think about 
kind of spooky curses from horror movies today. But it is interesting to go back and see some of the early iterations of this myth in novels such as this one. Oh, and then we're starting to cast out now into all different sorts of of pseudoscience. If coming, bringing in stuff from different directions and different influences, things are about to get very new age or perhaps theosophical, which is probably the more era appropriate version of new age. I think of theosophy as a precursor of the 20th century new age, but um, what's his name? The archaeologist Trelawney is he's just going, he's playing a blinder at this point, pulling out all of these crazy ideas and just jamming them in together. Uh, Bram Stoker's on a roll here. We just can't help himself. So now we get into astral travel wonderfully. So Trelawney says, uh, of Queen Terra. The astral body, which is a part of Buddhist belief, long subsequent to the time I speak of, and which is an accepted fact of modern mysticism, had its rise in ancient Egypt, at least so far as we know. It is that the gifted individual can at will, quick as thought itself, transfer his body whithsoever he chooses by the dissolution and reincarnation of particles. In the ancient belief there were several parts of a human being, you may as well know them, so that you will understand matters, matters relative to them or dependent on them as they occur. First, there is the ka, or double, which, as Dr. Budge explains, may be defined as an abstract individuality of personality, which was imbued with all the characteristic attributes of the individual it represented, and possessed an absolutely independent existence. It was free to move from place to place upon the earth at will, and it could enter into heaven or hold converse with the gods. Then there was the Ba, or soul, which dwelt in the Ka, and had the power of becoming corporeal or incorporeal at will. It had both substance and form. It had power to leave the tomb. Okay, a couple of notes here. Firstly, uh, the, the anything to do with astral travel um, cheers me up mightily and reminds me of the kind of 1940s books of Dennis Wheatley. He's most famous for The Devil Rides Out in, in I think, 1935. But he's the guy who kind of created the modern version of evil satanic bad guys that we all know and love um, unless you're a QAnon believer of course in which case it becomes a lot less fun and a lot less funny sadly but uh, he liked to write stories where people could learn mysticism and learn how to leave their body and float around you know blitz era London and uh, lots of good things came out of that in his novels and I, I do recommend them uh, for anyone who can deal with the sort of um shall we say, class and race issues that inevitably show up in books at that time. Um, also, he had, he had a book called The Cat of Hilary Gifford from about that period. So he's again uh, tapping into that sort of ancient Egyptian mysticism. I, I have no idea if the Egyptians were into um, astral travel. I've never heard of it. But it's clear that really what Stoker is doing here is he's bringing in the sort of Eastern mysticism that the westerners were really interested in which was more associated with their ideas of buddhism and india and in particular with the himalayas being as they were kind of one of the last still mysterious parts of the world where the europeans hadn't spent a whole lot of time interestingly in this year 1903 the one of the very last bits of what was called the great game the sort of cold war in Central Asia between Britain and Russia was to play out in the Himalayas with a, under the watch of a British military and spy and, and, and soldier by the name of Young Husband. I think it was William Young Husband where he went into the Himalayas and sort of finally accessed some of these hidden cities. But prior to that time, 
Um, it had been a pretty, the, the Himalayas had been a pretty useful place for Western mystics to claim that they had done all their training. I think Helena Blavatsky, who came up with Theosophy, that was always her story. Oh, I, I disappeared and I wandered in, you know, for several years in India and the Himalayas and I learned all these secrets. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that she actually did, but uh, it was a useful kind of mysterious and spooky place to claim that you had been training with, you know, uh, ascended masters. So continuing on Queen Tara and her astral abilities, we learn that each part of her body, though separated from the rest, can be a central point or rallying place for the items or particles of her astral body. That hand in my room could ensure her instantaneous presence in the flesh and its equally rapid dissolution. It's a pretty cool idea. Um, it would be cool if more of this actually happened in the book. It's a pretty horrifying um, visual and a great idea for a villain in a, in a horror novel, but I don't think the book ever really goes there, but it's a nice idea. He then says, The purpose of the attack on me was to get the safe open so that the sacred jewel of seven stars could be extracted. So that explains some of the shenanigans in the first part of the book, where Queen Terra is, is sort of trying to take or take control somehow of Trelawney's body and get him to open the safe to access the jewel of seven stars and um, one of the reasons why she was maybe trying to scratch the hand off him or cut his hand off was because he had the key for it in a, a sort of a bangle that he wore on his wrist. We then get some stuff from Margaret where she sort of identifies with Tara and speaks in amazingly flowery language about what her life must have been like and I suppose we are to see this sort of feminine connection across the ages. She says, Of some other land, far, far away under the canopy of the silent night, lit by the cool, beautiful light of the stars, a land under that northern star, whence blew the sweet winds that cooled the feverish desert air, a land of wholesome greenery far, far away, where were no scheming and malignant priesthood, whose ideas were to lead to power through gloomy temples and more gloomy caverns of the dead, through an endless ritual of death, a land where love was not base but a divine possession of the soul. So we have uh, Queen Terra there, as interpreted by Margaret uh, back in the, you know, thousands of years ago, dreaming about how wonderful England was going to be. So then we get to this little bit of... Uh, perhaps what you might call archaeo-astronomy, when Trelawney says, Now, as to the time at which Queen Terra intended her resurrection to take place, we are in contact with some of the higher astronomical calculations in connection with true orientation. As you know, the stars shift their relative positions in the heavens, but though the real distances travelled are beyond all ordinary comprehensions, the effects as we see them are small. Nevertheless, they are susceptible of measurement, not by years indeed, but by centuries. It was this, by this means, that Sir John Herschel arrived at the date of the building of the Great Pyramid, a date fixed by the time necessary to change the star of the true north from Draconis to the Pole Star, and since then verified by later discoveries. From the above, there can be no doubt whatever that astronomy was an exact science with the Egyptians at least a thousand years before the time of Queen Terra. Now the stars that go to make up a constellation change in process of time their relative positions, and the plough is a notable example. The changes in the position of stars in even 40 centuries are so small as to be hardly noticeable by an eye not trained to minute observances, but they can be measured and verified. So there's some good stuff here. Archaeoastronomy, of course, is the practice of um, 
sort of turning the clock back on our understanding of how the stars in the sky have changed. And it is true that uh, what is currently the, the, the North Star, which is the, the Polaris, the Pole Star, has not always been the case uh, throughout recorded history because these things do change on large enough timescales. So that particular star hasn't always been um, you know, as close as it is to the, the true north or the, the, the polar north or whatever it's called. Um, so we have evidence of this from some of the oldest civilizations that did have writing and left us information. However, archaeoastronomy is also a big, a big go-to of various pseudoscientists and people who like to try and emphasize the mysteriousness of the pyramids and make connections to maybe more cosmic worldviews, shall we say. It was very common in sort of Van, Daniken, Van Daniken's era in the 1970s and 80s for people who wanted the Egyptians to seem a little more mysterious than perhaps they were and, and more advanced than perhaps they were to try and argue that the point, the, the layout of the pyramids matched with certain elements of the sky and they would cast back into time to say, well, you know, if the stars looked like this back at a particular point in history, then the Egyptians were either predicting, you know, future constellations for, for reasons that basically are descendants of what Stoker is doing here. So it's, again, it's really interesting to see the beginnings of some of these ideas. And this isn't even their earliest um, proposition. It's just an early version of seeing them in, in pop culture, which is always interesting. He then says, you are quite correct, they correspond exactly. And yet, when Queen Terra was laid in her tomb, neither the stars and the jewel, nor the translucent places in the coffer corresponded to the position of the stars in the constellation as they then were. So he's proposing that Terra was, I suppose, coming uh, predicting when and where she would appear by placing the stars in that shape on her paraphernalia. So I, I really like this idea. I find it very attractive. I love stories that deal with and these immortal characters who live for thousands of years and are able to affect their plans on such enormous and impressive timescales. Now there's a heck of a chapter coming up next. This is called Powers Old and New. One of the weird things about this book is that it had a second version, don't know if I've mentioned this, um, in 1913 when the ending was changed because as we'll find out the ending to the original 1903 version was a little bit grim and a later publisher um, decided to change this. It's unknown whether or not Stoker himself really did write the revamped final chapter, but it's of note that this chapter we're about to go through, Powers Old and New, was removed in that version. And I think the reason is that there is a direct connection between the sort of cosmic posturing, shall we say, of this chapter and what eventually does happen at the end of the book. So it's clear Stoker is sort of laying out something that he considers key to the story here. Well, see what you think. I have a lot of quotes here and this gets a little heavy. So, you know, just make sure you're sitting down, have a drink of something and we'll get through this. So this chapter, a lot of it is just the narrator, Ross, thinking to himself in rather a dramatic way. But he says... Men know that the portals of the house of death were not in very truth eternally fixed and that the death could come forth again. Could we realize what it was for us modern mortals to be arrayed against the gods of old with their mysterious powers gotten from natural forces or begotten of them when the world was young, when land and water were forming themselves from out of the primeval slime? 
when the very air was purifying itself from elemental dross, when the dragons of the prime were changing their forms and their powers, made only to combat with geologic forces, to grow in accord with the new vegetable life which was springing up around them. Aye, and further back still, when as yet the spirit which moved on the face of the waters had not spoken the words commanding to come into existence light and the life which followed it. So he, he, be, he goes on like this for quite a while. This is getting into the realm of cosmic horror for me. Now, cosmic horror, of course, is, is mostly associated with Lovecraft, but there are some earlier proponents of things that people now consider to be um, cosmic horror, uh, kind of in the 1890s. So a little bit even before this, you've got the work of um, Arthur Mackin primarily, who was, of course, a big influence on Lovecraft, and Lovecraft wrote extensively about him. But listen to this. Ross says, The whole possibility of the great experiment to which we were now pledged was based on the reality of the existence of the old forces which seemed to be coming in contact with the new civilization. What's interesting to me about this chapter is the characters are coming to the conclusion that, well, what if the, the old gods the ancient Egyptians believed in were real? And for a, you know, an Edwardian, you know, Church of England, morally upstanding, church-going person to be toying with these ideas is tremendously interesting. This is not a small thing for them. And this is delving into a sort of an almost an existential horror. The idea that their God, their Christ is not the only one. And, and then he starts to wonder if, you know, maybe both sets of gods are real. And what can, in which case, what kind of a universe is it that he's proposing that they live in? Is it one where God is not the final arbiter of truth and goodness? He's not the only power in the universe. Um, and every era gets its own god you know and whatever you believe in is what becomes real and powerful are we dealing with a sort of a a, a tulpa situation here he says um, were those primal and elemental forces controlled at any time by other than that final cause which christendom holds as its very essence if there were truth at all in the belief of ancient egypt then their gods had real existence real power real force if then the old gods held their forces, wherein was the supremacy of the new? Of course, if the old gods had lost their power, or if they never had any, the experiment could not succeed. But if it should indeed succeed, or if there were a possibility of success, then we should be face to face with an inference so overwhelming that one hardly dared to follow it to its conclusion. Was there room in the universe for opposing gods? Or if such there were, would the stronger allow manifestations of power on the part of the opposing force, which would tend to the weakening of his own teaching and designs? I must say, outside of works which are specifically sort of hearkening back to perhaps versions of paganism and stuff like that from this time, particularly the work, the work of Arthur Mackin, it's not that common in my experience to come across writers of this period so openly toying with the idea that Christianity is either flat out wrong or just isn't the only game in town. So I find this tremendously interesting. And um, we get a little talk again about how, um, you know, we, we have discovered that special kinds of light in science has special forces. He mentions Röntgen rays. And again, we're, we're getting into the realm of radioactivity here, which, of course, 1903, 1904, the, the, the Marie Curie and um, her discoveries were relatively recent. And again, Stoker is doing some... Uh, ripped from the headlines stuff here. He says, I don't see why starlight might not have its own subtle quality as well. 
So we're getting into really speculative stuff here. He's flying off into crazy directions. So, you know, he's trying to justify, well, how is it that the Egyptians might have had some kind of power? And he's, they're going back and forth between interpreting this in a mystical way and a more scientific way. Oddly enough, it's uh, the archaeologist Trelawney who tends to most easily go off into the mysticism. And it's Ross, who's a lawyer, who seems to be trying to interpret what's happening in a more scientific way he says uh, can anyone imagine that by the eyes of men unaided by lenses of wondrous excellence astronomy was brought to such a pitch that the true orientation of temples and pyramids and tombs followed for four thousand years the wanderings of the planetary systems in space if an instance of their knowledge of microscopy is wanted let me hazard a conjecture how was it that in their hier hieroglyphic writing they took as the symbol of flesh the very form which the science of today, relying on the revelations of a microscope of a thousand powers, gives to protoplasm, that unit of living organism which has been differentiated as flagella? I think contemporary ancient alien advocates would recognise these crazy lines of thinking, you know? Ha, huh, so the Egyptians... Um, had this symbol. Let's see if we can find something contemporary that it looks a little bit like if you, you know, squint a bit and turn your head upside down. And then let's build a gigantic big uh, hypothesis based on that alone. And he goes, he goes further um, with these crazy thoughts. He says, could it be possible that they have learned to store light just as we have learned to store electricity? Nay, more, is it not even possible that they did so? They must have used some form of artificial light which they used in the construction uh, of the pyramids and the caverns and then he goes on to say that well they must have used a light to see in there but there's no mark of smoke so they couldn't possibly have have used lamps or torches again this is all very post von Daniken thinking you know take some small little oddity and build upon it uh, until you know because something is a mystery or is presented as being a mystery therefore you know Atlanteans or aliens or, or whatnot he says the discoveries of the Curies and of Laborde of Sir William Crookes and Becquerel may have far-reaching results on Egyptian investigation. This new metal, radium, or rather this old metal of which our knowledge is new, may have been known to the ancients. So, yeah, radium is the hot new thing in science in 1903, so, you know, we want the Egyptians to seem powerful and mystical, so maybe they had it, and he, he gives some really terrible <laughs> reasons as to why they might have had radium. Uh, because there is uh, veins of something called pitch blend, which is a type of a mineral which can be contain radio or can be radioactive, and he says that well maybe they had access to that because you find it in other places, and then he says well maybe the reason they fixate on the scarabs so much is because the scarabs collect dung and roll it up into balls, and that the desert in which they live is clearly so loaded with radium that these balls must become in themselves powerful sources of radioactive energy. Uh, travelers tell us that glass left in tropic deserts changes color and darkens in the fierce sunlight just as it does under the influence of the rays of radium. Does not this imply some sort of similarity between the two forces yet to be identified? It's exactly the kind of freewheeling association that you get in highly speculative um, pseudo-archaeology today. I might sound a little bit hostile towards that sort of thing. I, I Look, I think it's fun in fiction and I think it's fun as open speculation when it's um, clearly labelled as such and I think 
as an exercise in open-mindedness. It does no harm. But uh, I do I do become impatient with the fact that people writing books about this sort of thing are making a lot of headway at the moment. And it I feel like it's a slap in the face to real archaeologists who have to go through the system and you know are not free to just make these associations with with poor evidence so that's yeah that's how i feel about it we're coming towards the end of the story now trelawney says that for the great experiment they need isolation he emphasizes how the trick they're about to pull off will not work in the city and this is a pra for practical reasons but also for kind of metaphorical or uh, thematic reasons he's he's we're making a dichotomy constantly between the up-to-date 20th century present and the ancient past so it makes sense that they need to go back to an older part of england so they go to cornwall and uh, near a town called kylian which is a, a made-up town but it's uh, named after a, a real place in cornwall which claims to be england's oldest town so this uh, this dichotomy is being emphasized here so it turns out that trelawney has a big old house by the sea in in this outside this town in Cornwall and they they start moving all this stuff there they pack up all of the archaeological bits and pieces put them onto a train and there are shades of Dracula here this feels a little bit like the end of Dracula when you know Harker and Mina and all of the characters are trying to race to beat the count getting back to Transylvania and the book focuses a lot on the transport because at that point in his career Stoker is, is is interested in science and technology, but in Dracula, he presents it as largely a positive thing, which helps the characters to overcome this ancient evil. His attitude towards science and technology is far more ambivalent in Jewel of Seven Stars. But we get the same sort of a chase, almost like a chase sequence, where they're trying to get all this stuff back to the house before a certain date, so that they can pull off the the experiment you know, according to a certain a certain astronomical timeline that the professor has in mind. But something is lacking here, I will say, because this book essentially is all about the experiment. That's what the climax is, and that's what sets everything in motion. And it's basically just the professor wants to do this. He wants to try it out because he... Um, I mean, there's elements here of Frankenstein and scientific hubris and, uh, you know, the cosmic horror of things man was not meant to know. But it lacks, it's weird to say this, but it lacks an antagonist the way Dracula does, because even though Queen Terra is the antagonist, like, she's not trying to stop them. She's not really doing anything to get in their way, because actually they want to do what she wants them to do. So there isn't that, you know, pull and give that you have in Dracula with these two forces against each other. You have instead this slowly building dread on the part of the narrator, Ross, as he only incredibly slowly starts to think, huh, what if this thing we're all trying really hard to do isn't a good thing and will have bad consequences? So they're wondering about whether or not they'll be able to get all the material safely to Cornwall on the train. And Margaret says, no, it's, it's going to be fine. You know, the Queen has power, but she won't, she won't try and stop us, basically, because she knows that this is what the Queen wants. And... Um, Trelawney says she or something wrecked us in the desert when we had come from the tomb in the valley of the sorcerer was the grim comment of oh, Corbeck who was standing by Margaret answered him like a flash ah but she was then near her tomb from which for thousands of years her body had not been moved she must know that things are different now how must she know asked Corbeck 
If she has that astral body that father spoke of, surely she must know. How can she fail to with an invisible presence and an intellect that can roam abroad even to the stars and the worlds beyond? So, aside from all this cosmic awesomeness, Margaret knows what's up. Because presumably she's connected to Terra in some way. Uh, again, like the end of Dracula, when they're traveling across Europe and Mina is somehow psych psychically connected to Dracula and her allegiances are a little bit in question. Uh, Margaret's definite announcement, there will not be any trouble tonight, seemed to carry assurance with it. I did not question it, nor did anyone else. It was only afterwards that I began to think as to how she was so sure. Yeah, so, you know, our man Ross isn't the sharpest tool in the drawer here. And he also, he's getting, he's getting really ratty with Margaret because, you know, she's not behaving like a, a proper doting Victorian wife anymore. She's being independent and having her own ideas and being a bit of a new woman. He says, towards myself, her manner was strange. Sometimes it was marked by a distance, half shy, half haughty, which was new to me. And that makes me question the, the rest of the book where Margaret is written as a total, like, uh, wishy-washy, <clears throat> fainting all the time, you know, can't do anything without the men in her life around her. And now she's starting to get this independence and the narrator isn't happy at all. And uh, I guess whether or not uh, whether or not this is supposed to be a good thing in some way um, depends on your, your take on Stoker and who his sympathies are with. So they, they find themselves at a great grey stone mansion of the Jacobian period, standing high over the sea on the very verge of a cliff. So they've been put in a very separate, a very isolated area, deliberately away from all sorts of modernity. And there's a great cave underneath the house, built into the cliff against the, the ocean. And this is where, this is sort of the gothic location in which our finale will happen. And uh, Trelawney says... For good or ill, we must here stand by our chances and abide by results. If we are successful, we shall be able to let in on the world of modern science such a flood of light from the old world as will change every condition of thought and experiment and practice. So he's, he's expecting rather a lot here. We get another little bit of sort of mystical astronomy and, and time chronology here. Again, which is... Reminiscent of Indiana Jones, where, you know, you have to be in the right place in the tomb at the right time so the light comes through. Which, I mean, you know, I'm Irish, it makes me think of Newgrange up in County Meath. Uh, so this is a thing that has reality in, in archaeology. It also has a history in science fiction. You've got Jules Verne in Journey to the Centre of the Earth in, I think, the 1860s, um, maybe earlier. Or, no, it's 72, it's 1872, and... There's a, a plot idea where the characters have to get to a volcano in Iceland on a particular date so that the shadow of one of the cones falls into the right place and lets them know where they can travel down into the centre of the earth. I do like this trope a lot. The characters say, After the most anxious thought I have fixed on July 31st, Queen Terra was ruled in great degree by mysticism, and there are so many evidences that she looked for resurrection that naturally she would choose a period ruled over by a god specialised to such a purpose. Now the fourth month of the season of inundation was ruled, and he goes into some detail about um, about Harmachus, which was another name for Ra, the sun god, who was associated with re resurrection, I suppose, because he rises every day. This arising is manifestly to physical life, since it is of the mid-world of human daily life. 
Now, as this month begins on our 25th July, the seventh day would be July 31st, for you may be sure that the Mystic Queen would not have chosen any day but the seventh or some power of seven. Well, that does seem to fit in with her MO, doesn't it? We then get a chapter called Doubts and Fears as the uh, as that particular date draws more closely and uh, there's some more hand-wringing from our narrator about the new Margaret and uh, whose intellectual aloofness made an impalpable barrier between us. Those new women with their book learning and fighting for voting rights and such things. So they set up everything in this cavern underneath and we get uh, we get just a quick rundown once again on Queen Terra and how scary she is. And here's a, a running tally of all the people she's killed. It says, In the history of the mummy, from the time of Van Heuren's breaking into the tomb, the record of death that we knew of, presumably affected by her will and agency, was a startling one. The Arab who had stolen the hand from the mummy and the one who had taken it from his body. The Arab chief who had tried to steal the jewel from Van Hoyn and whose throat bore the marks of seven fingers. The two men found dead on the first night of Trelawney's taking away the sarcophagus and the three on the return to the tomb. The Arab who had opened the secret Sir Dab. Nine dead men, one of them slain manifestly by the Queen's own hand. And beyond this again, the several savage attacks on Mr Trelawney in his own room, in which, aided by her familiar, she had tried to open the safe and to extract the talisman jewel. If then the Queen, intent on her resurrection under her own conditions, had, so to speak, waded to it through blood, what might she not do were her purpose thwarted? Yeah, guys, it's almost as if resurrecting this woman is maybe not a good idea, but, I mean, you know, what do I know? He talks a little bit more about the plans she made for resurrection and how she had set up the tomb so that she was ready to walk out of it and into the world, if so be, which is a little inconsistent. Sometimes they make it sound as though she expected to be resurrected where she was buried in Egypt, and other times it's very clear that she had her eyes on this northern country. Perhaps she intended to resurrect and then travel north? We don't, we don't really know. He then talks about what they're going to learn. This is the, the classic mad scientist moment, you know. I'm going to do this dangerous thing which could plunge humanity into an era of darkness. But think of what we will learn if out of the unknown past one who can yield to us the lore stored in the great library of Alexandria and lost in its consuming flames. Not only history can be set right and the teachings of science made veritable from their beginnings, but we can be placed on the road to the knowledge of lost arts, lost learning, lost sciences. Uh, things man was not meant to know indeed. He goes on a little bit more about um, if the resurrection indeed is able to be done, then how could they doubt the old knowledge, the old magic, the old belief? So he's like a full-on ancient Egyptian believer at this point. He's like, this is pretty heretical stuff coming from a guy in 1903 in Britain. Um, and then we get a chapter called The Lesson of the Ka, which I did not make any notes for. And finally, we get to The Great Experiment, uh, version one, shall we say. So they set everything up in the cave, and on the night in question, um, oh, they do an unrolling. So unrolling, I think we mentioned this way back in episode one, but unrolling mummies was a thing in early 19th century Europe, and for a long time it was not seen to be anything spooky or mystical it was just a sort of a 
a scientific curiosity perhaps, but certainly by this period, the idea of Egypt as a dangerous place full of ancient magic and curses was very common, hence the book we're reading. Not only that, but there's an undeniable sexual element here. So as they start unwrapping her, Margaret gets very upset and she says, just think, father, a woman all alone in such a way, in such a place. Oh, it's cruel. She was manifestly much overcome. So yeah, she's, she thinks like, this is not a, an artifact. This is a person, you know, who are you, who are you men to unwrap her in front of everybody, you know, being all cold and scientific as if she was just some kind of artifact. Of course, they say, not a woman, dear, a mummy. She has been dead nearly 5,000 years. What does that matter? Sex is not a matter of years. A woman is a woman. If she had been dead 5,000 centuries, and you expect her to arise out of that long sleep, it could not be real death if she is to rise out of it. Oh, and then, <laughs> and then they say, oh, they didn't have women's rights or lady doctors in ancient Egypt, my dear. And besides, uh, he went on more freely, seeing that she was accepting his argument, if not yielding to it, we men are accustomed to such things. Corbeck and I have unrolled a hundred mummies, and there were as many women as men amongst them. Dr. Winchester, in his work, has had to deal with women as well as men, till custom has made him think nothing of sex. Even Ross has in his work as a barrister. So he's trying to uh, implicate the narrator here as well. Hey, you know, we're just doing our job. Uh, we don't treat men and women any differently from each other. So the experiment goes underway, but something goes terribly, terribly wrong. But before we, I've, I've jumped the gun a little bit because when they open up the coffin, they see that she's got this bit of clothing on the outside of her and it's a marriage robe. According to the learned doctors, we all stood awed at the beauty of the figure, which, save for the face cloth, now lay completely nude before us. Mr. Trelawney bent over and with hands that trembled slightly, raised this linen cloth, which was of the same fineness as the robe. As he stood back and the whole glorious beauty of the queen was revealed, I felt a rush of shame sweep over me. It was not right that we should be there, gazing with irreverent eyes on such unclad beauty. It was indecent, it was almost sacrilegious. And yet, the white wonder of that beautiful form was something to dream of. It was not like death at all. It was like a, st a statue carven in ivory by the hand of a Praxiteles. So, yeah, they're making it very clear. This is not a dead body. You know, it doesn't look like one. This is a woman and she's she's hot and she's super white as well. But, you know, we've talked about that already. I'm not going to go down that road again. But there's a, there's a definite sexual element here. The flesh was full and round as in a living person and the skin was as smooth as satin. The colour seemed extraordinary. It was like ivory, new ivory, except where the right arm, with shattered blood-stained wrist and missing hand, had lain bare to exposure in the sarcophagus for so many tens of centuries. Her hair, glorious in quantity and glossy as the raven's wing, was piled in great masses over the white forehead. This woman, I could not think of her as a mummy or a corpse, was the image of Margaret as my eyes had first lit on her. Yes, of course, the, the, the physical um, similarity between Margaret and Queen Terra, much is made of that, of course. Now, we get a little bit more information about... Oh, there's a storm, of course. And, um... Oh, yeah, we get some good gothic stuff here. As the storm rages, um, Ross says, 
In that dread hour of expectancy, when the forces of life and death were struggling for the mastery, imagination was awake. I almost fancied that the storm was a living thing and animated with the wrath of the quick. Reminds me a bit of Dracula, who to some degree can uh, control the elements, and also of the 1999 Mummy, which, though way sillier, is, is a, still a very good film, and they really make good use of the, the idea that the mummy has power over the elements in that one too. My own eyes were nearly blinded by the awful, paralysing light, so that I could hardly trust them. I saw something white rising up from the open sarcophagus, something which appeared to my tortured eyes to be filmy, like a white mist. In the heart of this mist, which was cloudy and opaque like an opal, was something like a hand holding a fiery jewel flaming with many lights. So something goes wrong, the storm bursts in the window, and we're get, it's a little bit vague, I'll be, I'll be honest here. We get that paragraph saying that something white has risen from the grave. I presume it's supposed to be the queen. She's holding the jewel, and the lights go out, and everybody disappears. And then the narrator picks up what he thinks is Margaret, who was passed out on the floor. And when he gets the light back, he brings her into the house. And when he gets the light back on, he says, Her body was not there, but on the spot where I had laid her was Queen Terra's bridal robe, and surrounding it the girdle of wondrous gems. Where the heart had been lay the jewel of seven stars. He goes downstairs and says, I found them all where they had stood. They had sunk down on the floor and were gazing upward with fixed eyes of unspeakable terror. Margaret had put her hands before her face, but the glassy stare of her eyes through her fingers was more terrible than any open glare. And that's the end of the book, according to the original 1903 version. It's a little vague. Most commentators seem to assume that Stoker intends you to think that Queen Terra has successfully resurrected and left the premises and is now free to you know, roam England and cause whatever mischief and terror that she has in mind. But uh, oh, also some of the aspects of the her resurrection remind some viewers of the powers of of radiation, the the light that is so powerful that um you know it can't be bared to be to be looked at. Which I mean, Stoker is definitely building up to something with all of these this hinting and teasing of the the ancient powers of Egypt in particular with regard to radiation. But there's very little here. It's it's quite. We're making much of little in terms of what we actually get in this final chapter. I think it's a fair interpretation of what's going on, but it's not the only one, because then, in 1912, I might have said 1913 earlier, um, William Ryder and Son published an abridged edition, and they changed this final chapter. There's some debate about whether or not Stoker actually uh, wrote it, but it's almost exactly the same, except after they're in the middle of the storm, Terra is destroyed, she kind of combusts and becomes just a bunch of ashes, and then our boy uh, Malcolm Ross gets to marry Margaret, and when they get married, she wears the Jewel of Seven Stars in her hair on, on the day of the marriage, on the, on the day of the wedding. So there, that's it. That was a nicer, friendlier, cuddlier end for a, uh, a, later, a later time in, li in life, I suppose. And that's the end of Bram Stoker's The Jewel of Seven Stars. What do I think about it overall? I quite like this one. It's, it's not an easy read, and it's not always a fun read. The first half of it is incredibly slow. I skipped a lot of boring stuff. 
I'm, some people really like how it builds slowly and he, Stoker drops in the supernatural elements and the, all of his research is really is really interesting and it shows that he cared more than your average thriller writer. He's not just using Egypt as a you know a handy dandy spooky place from which to source your enemy in the book. He he does care. He is interested. And I do think that he's using ideas at that time, which are important as to how people in Europe considered the East and Egypt in particular. All the usual stuff applies. You know, we've got all the usual turn of the century concerns about new women and about the colonial enterprise. Same stuff that people, commentators usually will say about Dracula as well. But yeah, that brings me to a close, folks. Um, my next ancient spooky Egypt thing that I might cover will be the, the haunted mummy case of Amun-Ra, which is in the British Museum and is semi-infamous if you are a fan of this sort of thing. It's a real thing. You can go and see it uh, whenever the British Museum, if it's reopened at the moment, I'm not sure. It's in the, the second Egyptian room, I think. And yeah, it, there's nothing special marking it as being the haunted one. You look it up to get a picture of what it looks like. But there's an incredible amount of folklore attached to it and getting to the bottom of that story will take a little time so I have some research ahead of me I don't know exactly when uh, I will be ready to tackle that particular episode anyway in other in other words I'll wrap up all the usual stuff please uh, re retweet resend share episodes uh, please reviews are great stars are great all that good stuff if you want to reach out and say hello best place for that is on twitter as usual where we are at strange ireland so stay safe and thanks for listening and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object you will prove the existence of the bigfoot or sasquatch by